Last week, if you were with us, you'll recall that we uh, didn't quite get to finish chapter 19 of the book uh, of Matthew as we've been studying through the book of Matthew. So today we will finish off the chapter and actually jump into chapter 20 and cover verses 1 through 16 of that chapter. And so uh, also, as is our practice every uh, first Sunday of the month, we are going to set aside some time at the end of our service to partake of the Lord's Supper in communion. And so i uh, got a lot to do today, and so we're just going to jump right into it, okay? Uh, in order to properly set the context of this morning's text, I thought that it would be necessary to do just a little review uh, from last week's portion of Scripture. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, just bear with me. For those of you who weren't, it would be important to kind of follow along. It sets the stage for what we're going to uh, be covering this morning. So last week we covered verses 16 through 26 of Matthew chapter 19. In those verses, we read about a rich young ruler that had approached the Lord, desiring to know what he could do that he may have eternal life. Jesus told him to keep the commandments to which the rich young ruler asked which commandments. And you'll remember that the Lord listed off some commandments to which the ruler, uh, rich young ruler confidently declared that he had indeed kept those commandments but wanted to know what else he still lacked. Right? Then, and, and then that's when Jesus really shined a spotlight upon this young man's sin that was really keeping him from a life fully surrendered to the Lord. Namely, it was wealth and materialism that was keeping him from the Lord. Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give to the poor and to come and follow him. But the rich young ruler, we remember, you'll remember, he went away sorrowful, not willing to leave his possessions and follow after the Lord. Okay, in today's portion, Peter is going to ask a question that pertains to the statement that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler in verse 21. In Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Okay? With that verse in mind, let's read our opening verses of our text this morning. We'll go ahead and just finish off chapter 19. We'll read verses 27, 28, 29, and 30 to get us rolling. Uh, would you mind standing as we read this morning's portion of Scripture, just to... In honor of God's word, also just to shake your legs out a little bit one more time before we sit uh, for the rest of our study. Okay? Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Peter, in response to everything that Jesus had said about the rich young ruler, he continues, he says, Then Peter answered and said to him, to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for My name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Verse 30, But... Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would lead and guide our time this morning in your word. Lord, we pray that we would not only understand the, the context of this portion of Scripture, uh, what you are saying and uh, responding to Peter and the disciples, but what you want to say to us here today. Lord, I know that you don't want us just to, to, to have a... Uh, uh, academic study, Lord, but, but we want it to make it personal. We want to be able to make application to our own lives. And so, Father, we pray that you'd open up our eyes, that you'd open up our ears and our hearts, that we might hear and receive all that you have for us. Lord, we pray your continued presence just to lead and guide us to bless our time. We thank you uh, that you are with us. We thank you uh, for your word, and we pray that you would just illuminate it to us at this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In verse 27, it, it, it seems to me that something caught 
Peter's ear when Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler. In, verses, in verse 21, Jesus promised that if the rich young ruler would have followed through with his request to come and follow him and to, to, to give his, uh, sell his goods and to give to the poor, that he would have received treasure in heaven. And I believe the idea of treasure in heaven caught Peter's ear. And he was quick to correlate the request that Jesus made of the rich young ruler and the request Jesus spoke to him and some of the other disciples a few years back. You guys may know or remember the first disciples were called uh, back in Matthew chapter 4. At the onset of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. And when he came across two brothers, Peter and Andrew, and he called to them, uh, called them to follow him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, this tells us that they immediately left their nets and followed him. After that, Jesus then came across two other brothers named James and John that were in a boat with their father, and they too were called to follow Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that, uh, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice that they didn't do exactly as Jesus had requested of the rich young ruler. They didn't uh, sell everything that they owned and give to the poor before coming to follow after Jesus. But they did leave their livelihood. They, their father, James and John, it tells us they left their father, uh, pretty much their life as they knew it, to answer the call to follow Jesus. And Peter gets to thinking in his mind, hey, if this guy would have got treasure in heaven, I wonder what we're going to get. The only promise that Jesus gave to them at the time of their calling was that they were going to become fishers of men. And maybe in Peter's mind, he's thinking, that's not exactly treasure in heaven, maybe from his point of view. And so he asked the question. Peter declares unto Jesus, See, we have left, and f- left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? You know, Peter's question, it isn't so bad as a question of a question if he would, as if he would have asked when he was first called by the Lord. If he would have asked that question when he was first called by the Lord, I don't think that would have went over very well. Can you imagine the Lord you know, coming to Peter there alongside the Sea of Galilee and calling out to Peter to come and follow him? And then uh, Peter responding with something like the lines of, well, what's in it for me? Or what am I going to get out of this? If I, if I do that, we would say, ooh, that's not very good, Peter. Uh, but he's already answered the call. He's been faithful, and he's made a lot of mistakes, but he's there alongside the Lord. He's uh, given and left all to do it. And so the question's not as bad as it could have been. Here, at least, Peter had already committed to, to the Lord. He'd been faithful. Uh, and, and so he'd been faithful to answer the call. But now that he's heard what other sort of offers, we'll say, uh, were being passed out, he begins to wonder about his future. And he begins to wonder what is in store for him and the others that did answer that call to leave all and come and follow him, referring to Jesus. And so Jesus responds to Peter with truth, but he also responds with a warning, as we'll see. First, we'll look at the truth. It's in verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, including the 12 tribes of, uh, excuse me, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus begins his address to Peter with assuredly. Okay? That word in the Greek is actually the uh, transliteration of the Hebrew word amen. And uh, transliteration, it's just a big word that basically means that the word wasn't translated from Hebrew, it was just given Greek letters so that they can sound it out the way that it's 
spoken in Hebrew. And so, amen is a Hebrew word, but it's written the same way, or it's pronounced the same way in Greek, uh, just written with Greek letters. And so the word amen, it can be used in different contexts. Okay? We often say it at the end of our prayers, and when we do so, we are basically uh, saying, so be it. Okay? We are acknowledging our desire or our consent for something that we've just asked about. We're saying, yes, we want that to be. We so, so be it. We agree with that prayer. Okay? In this context, said at the beginning of a statement, it indicates affirmation or in truth or verily. Often in the King James says, verily, verily, uh, truly, truly, or it is so. The idea here is that the statement that follows is certain to be true. It is trustworthy. And so what does he affirm? Jesus affirms to Peter and to the rest of the disciples that are listening in that when the Son of Man, Jesus, sits upon his throne of glory, they too will have thrones to sit upon and they will judge over the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus said that this would happen in the regeneration. And the regeneration in this context speaks of a time during the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? Where exactly that is, there's, is debatable. Remember that when we re- reference the second coming of Christ, the second advent, okay, it's not a one, uh, one moment in time type of thing, on this date, at this time. Okay? It's, a, it's a season. Okay? Like the first advent was 30-some years long, his first coming when he came and he dwelt upon the earth. The second advent will be similar. It's going to be a season. There's going to be a whole lot of things going on. We read a lot about those details in the book of Revelation uh, regarding what's going to happen at that second coming. When's this exactly going to happen? We don't know. But we do know during the days of his second coming, when he is sitting upon his throne. And so it's interesting that Jesus not only affirmed the positions Peter and the other disciples would have, but he also spoke of others that have similar, similarly answered the call to come follow Christ and what they could expect. In verse 29, Jesus states that everyone who has left family, loved ones, homes, and land for his name's sake will also receive from the Lord. Okay? Jesus spoke of incredible promises of blessings in this life and in the life to come. The blessings on this side of eternity, uh, or excuse me, the blessing, yes, the blessings on this side of eternity are represented in the statement a hundredfold. Okay? In Mark's gospel account of this same event, it clearly states that the hundredfold is for now in this time. In Mark chapter 10, 29, 30, he's saying that this, and now in this time, a hundredfold, but later he would inherit uh, also eternal life. And so... Uh, what does this promise of a hundredfold blessing mean? Okay. First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Okay. Some have looked at this promise and have tried to use it as a means to exploit people. Okay. Um, the prosperity gospel thrives upon people that fall into the false belief that if they just give unto the Lord in His name, that they should expect a hundredfold blessing in return. Prosperity gospel preachers will make all sorts of claims that if you support their ministry and give to them in the name of Jesus, that you will receive a hundredfold blessing. And that is simply not true. And those that preach such are going to have to answer to the Lord for all the people that they have exploited and deceived. That is not what this portion of Scripture is talking about. What I believe this is saying is that the Lord, He will provide for those that have made the sacrifice of leaving family and leaving, uh, uh, sacrificing uh, their family, loved ones, and, and homes. Hey, this is not talking about giving money, but leaving behind the the comforts of of family, leaving behind the comforts of of friends and homelands for the sake of the gospel. And I believe that this obviously would include uh, missionaries that have left families and homelands. But I think that you could make a case 
that this could also include people that are ostracized or banished uh, from family because of their faith in Christ. I think for most of us as Americans, we don't realize the great sacrifice that it can be for some to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. Traditionally and culturally, despite what maybe, well, never mind, I won't go there, but America is at one time or is seen as a a Christian nation or has Christian influence, and so it's not that crazy of a thing to be Christian. Okay, For some here in Japan, following Christ comes at the expense of being ostracized within their family or from their family. The thought of turning against the family religion is something that makes it very difficult for some in Japan to answer the call to follow Christ. Because there, I know people who have been cut off because of their faith in Christ in Japan. Japanese Christians who have experienced that. And so we may not understand it completely, but I think you can make a strong case that this scripture would indicate those two that make such a faith a proclamation of faith, knowing and realizing that it's going to cut off their ties from their family. Uh, certainly, I think it would represent missionaries that leave families and homes. You know, having spent the last 11 years uh, on the mission field uh, here in Japan, I can, I can attest to the truth of the scripture, these, this scripture in my life. I may have left family back in the States when I came to Japan, to Japan, but the Lord has given to me more brothers and sisters in the Lord than I could ever count. The relationships that um, the Lord has provided through the ministry have become as precious to me as family. You know, in fact, I feel that with with many of them, uh, I've become closer to to them uh, than I am with my real family, my biological family. Uh, and so I, I can attest to the truth of this scripture. Having left uh, my sister, having left my mother and my father, uh, my homeland to come and serve the Lord as the Lord gave opportunity, the Lord has tremendously blessed and provided a family that's incredibly much a hundred times, I'd say even bigger than a hundred times bigger than what my family is. And the Lord has, has done that in my life. And I don't mean to sound like I don't love or, or care about my family. Okay? I definitely do love them and I miss them. Uh, I'll only ever have one biological father and mother. Okay? And so they are uh, irreplaceable. But, you know, the Lord has provided people in my life to make up for the sacrifice of those relationships that have been left behind. It's true. This portion, as he says, assuredly, I say to you, this is a true statement. I left a home in California, but now through the loving families that we've come in contact with, we have people that are willing to open up their homes all around the world to us. It's amazing to think, you know, like I got family in Europe and I've got family in all across the continental U.S. and Hawaii and and uh, South America, and uh, Africa, it's, it's amazing to know. And, and that's what being part of the family of Christ brings to us, that blessing of, of a body that, and a family that is innumerable. And the Lord has more than made up for the small sacrifices that we've made to answer the call to follow Him. And we have no regrets for answering that call and, and leaving Uh, family and the comforts of home to to come on on the mission field. God has tremendously blessed us and rewarded us and made up for that. Jesus also mentioned the future blessing of eternal life. Notice that this is something that is inherited, it says there in verse 29. You're going to get this as you're going to receive a hundredfold blessing in this time, but you're going to inherit eternal life. Okay? Not earned, not rewarded for service. Okay? Eternal life is not a wage that is earned by those that have left family and home for the gospel's sake. It is an inheritance. It is a gift passed on to an heir. When we answer the call to follow Christ, we become part of the family of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 states that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. 
First John chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. For those that answered the call to forsake all, they are believers. Okay? They are part of God's family, and as such, they will inherit eternal life. They do not earn it. It's not a reward given to them for their faithful service. It's an inheritance. It's a gift that is passed on from our Father to us. And so we need to make sure, and I want to make sure that you understand, that the eternal life, that blessing that he talks about, it's not a reward. It's a gift. It's an inheritance that's passed on. You get it because you're in the family. I think that the, the principle that we learn regarding those that forsake family and home is that God will be a debtor to no man. It is impossible for us to give more to God than what He gives back to us. No matter how great a sacrifice that we ever would give, I'm here to tell you that it will never be greater than what God has given to you or what God will give to you. And I don't want that to come across as prosperity gospel, okay? because it's not. But I, I know it's true. I've seen it in my life. Okay? The Lord will more than make up for anything that we are willing to give up for His name's sakes. And it may not always be tangible material blessings. Okay? In fact, I believe more often than not, they are spiritual blessings. Okay? Which, in my opinion, they are far better than material blessings anyways. Material blessings, they pass away real fast. Spiritual blessings, blessings they have a, a, a way to, to last for all eternity. And so... God will always give back more to us than what we ever give to Him. We're never going to be in the positive. Like, ooh, God, God owes me now. I've really done a whole lot for Him. That's never going to be the case. Okay? So here we have a truth. As I mentioned, Jesus responded to Peter's question with a truth, but He also with a warning, and that comes in verse 30. Verse 30 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I believe Jesus probably sensed within Peter's question the possibility of having the wrong motive when it comes to following after the Lord and serving Him. We shouldn't serve the Lord simply for the purpose of being rewarded. Our desire to serve the Lord should come from a sincere heart of gratitude based upon what Christ has already done for us not because of some potential future rewards. God has afforded to us the ability to have our past, present, and future sins forgiven, to have a right standing before the Father and to dwell with Him for all eternity. Those things in and of themselves are more than enough reason to serve the Lord. The fa in fact, even if the Lord didn't provide for us any other sort of blessing or reward, we would still be indebted to Him if He just, just the work of the cross alone okay, is enough to merit our endless service to Him and our endless gratitude to Him. And yet He adds on top of that blessings and provisions and... and uh, it's more than what we deserve, that's for sure. And, and it's uh, definitely a blessing. Because of what the Lord detected in Peter's question, he went on to warn Peter and the rest of the disciples that God doesn't always do things the way that we think they should be done. Okay? Jesus began verse 30 with the word, but. Okay, but is a word, you know, we did, I did a... a uh, Bible study class one time, an inductive Bible study, and one of the things that they taught us to look at was they called them uh, in, insignif significant insignificance. Uh, words, little tiny words that we really don't think are very significant, okay? but they are. We, we, they carry important. They like, allow, allow us to better understand the Scripture and better understand what's going on. That word but is one of those insignificant words that we often just read over. We don't really pay much attention to it. But it's interesting because, but you guys know it's a word to contrast. It's a word of contrast. It contrasts two different things. Jesus is contrasting two facts here. The fact that the disciples and those that follow the Lord will be rewarded with the fact that many who are first will be last 
and the last first. We often think that we, excuse me, we often think that we perceive to be the first or that, that those that perceive, excuse me, we often think or perceive that the first or the best will be first or get the best. That's just how we think. He's first, he's going to get the best. He's the best, he's going to be rewarded the most. That's how we think. Okay? But God acknowledges that such is not always the case. Sometimes those we perceive as the last and the least will be rewarded with far greater than those who are seen as the first or the best. You know, a great number of people have been used by the Lord that we look back upon with high regard. Pillars of faith, giants of faith. We can talk like uh, men like Charles Spurgeon, uh, missionary Hudson Taylor, uh, modern guy uh, Billy Graham. And, And they're seen as these giants of faith. And we expect that they will be rewarded greatly in heaven. But what about those that faithfully prayed for those giants of the faith during their years of ministry? Those that were there to support and encourage and allow them to do what they did. Working behind the scenes, never in the spotlight, never caring about being behind the scenes, yet faithfully serving the Lord and lifting up and supporting those in the spotlight and those upon the stage and those within the pulpit. I imagine that there will be a great deal of people in heaven with many rewards and blessings that we will never have heard of. Because they weren't in the spotlight. But they were faithful. And they served and and lifted up and interceded on behalf of those pillars of faith, those great men and women of faith who have done great things for the Lord. Many of them will attest, if you read their uh, biographies, they'll attest of those that were praying for them, those that were interceding on their behalf, those who were providing financially for them to be able to do what they did, realizing that without that support, without that help, without the Lord using those people in their life, they never would have been able to do what the Lord called them to do. And so God worked using those behind-the-scenes people. And I believe when we get to heaven, we will be surprised. We're going to be like, who's that? That's the old lady that was praying in the closet. All, every single time Billy Graham was getting up and preaching a sermon. Or that's the, the person you know, that was you know, faithfully providing financially for this missionary to go out and, and do these great works of the Lord. I'm like, well, I never even knew that person. It's all right. We don't need to know them. The Lord knows and the Lord sees. Now the following parable in chapter 20, okay, in the opening 15 verses of chapter 20, it's given as an illustration of this point of the first being last and the last first. If you peek ahead, chapter 20, verse 16, we see that Jesus bookends this parable with a similar phrase as verse 30 of chapter 19. There in verse 16 says, So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. And so we see chapter 30 of verse 19 talks about the uh, first being last and the last being first. And then again, then we get this parable. And at the end of this parable, we get another bookend talking about the same exact thing. And so we can tell, we know that these... This parable is connected to this theme or this idea of the first being last and the last being first. And we have to realize, well, why did Jesus say that in the first place? Remember, he said that because he was referring to what Peter was saying and his asking and saying, what are we going to get? And he says, hey, you're going to get this, but know that it doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to work out. And so let's jump into this parable, try to understand what it's saying to us Uh, to them there in that context, but also to us, okay? All right, verse 1 of chapter 20 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, okay? Here the parable opens up with details about a landowner who needed to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. We're told that the landowner went out early in the morning. Based upon the rest of the story, we know that the time was most likely 
uh, before the beginning of the day, which traditionally would be around 6 o'clock a.m. So he's out there five-something at the marketplace looking for laborers to work in his vineyard. The phrase, when he had agreed, in verse uh, 2, is actually one Greek word, and it means to be contracted. Okay? And so the idea here is that the landowner, as well as the laborers, they negotiated upon a fair and equal price. Okay? Uh, there was a contract that was put together. Okay, I'll, you know, you're going to come and you're going to work 12 hours and I'm going to pay you this much. Good to go, good to go, we'll shake on it. Contracted, that's what it means, okay, to be agreed upon. So there was these negotiations that happened, okay? The agreed upon price was one denarius a day, okay? A denarius denotes uh, of the Roman penny, and so some of your actually Bible translations may say a Roman penny, okay? It was a silver coin equivalent in value to the Greek drachma, okay? A denarius is considered a more than fair wage for a full day's work in the fields. Here's a, a day's wage, a good day's, hard work day's wage. Okay? Lastly, we note that the landowner sent them into his vineyard. Okay? Now, as we look to unpack this parable, we want to realize just a, a few basic principles about parables. Okay? First and foremost, I, as I often have said, recall that a parable is simply an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. An earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Most of the time, Jesus' parables revolved around agriculture. The reason for this was because most everyone would be familiar with those earthly stories. And they'd be able to say, okay, I, I can follow that. Talking about a guy scattering seed in a field, or talking about wheat and tares growing in a field, or for instance here, laborers to work in a field. Uh, many of the parables dealt with agriculture because many of the people lived in that kind of uh, lifestyle. Okay? Secondly, when uh, trying to discern and find the proper interpretation of a parable, it's important to try and properly identify all the pieces to the puzzle. Okay? You, we want to ask questions. Uh, use the question words like who, what, when, where, why uh, to properly identify important parts. Who's mentioned in the parable? What are they doing? Okay, what is happening in the parable? Uh, where does the parable take place? When does the parable t uh, occur? Why is the parable being told? Okay, what is the heavenly truth that it's trying to highlight? And so uh, we want to keep those things in mind. Thirdly, we have to realize that parables aren't always going to perfectly reflect a heavenly truth. Okay. Oftentimes we'll read through it and it's like, oh, it could mean that, but it doesn't make sense if you look at it this way, you know, and, and sometimes we can uh, be uncertain because okay, it doesn't fit exactly uh, a certain heavenly truth. But it leads us to that heavenly truth. It leads us to think and, and to uh, ponder that heavenly truth. And so we have to realize that that sometimes happens. Parables don't fit exactly. Okay? Looking at this parable there have been suggested a few different interpretations for what Jesus meant when speaking this parable. Some believe that Jesus is speaking about rewards in heaven. Others uh, think that Jesus is talking about salvation and eternal life. And still others suggest a different interpretation involving the Jews and the Gentiles, that the, the Jews were first, but the Gentiles were last. But the Gentiles are going to be first, and the Jews will be last. Okay? I don't think that this parable is speaking about rewards or salvation for a couple of reasons. Okay? I, I don't believe this parable is talking about rewards because the Scriptures teach us that we will have different rewards in heaven. The scriptures speak about five different crowns that we will be given uh, to certain that will be given to certain individuals in heaven. Okay, also uh, that each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor in First Corinthians chapter three verse eight. And so rewards will be different. Okay, and the fact that everyone received the same denarius makes me believe that maybe this isn't speaking about rewards in heaven. Okay. We all don't get the same rewards in heaven, and so why would everybody get the same denarius? Okay? 
And I don't believe that this parable is talking about salvation either because of the connection uh, with wages. Wages imply a payment for work done. If we make this parable to be speaking about salvation, then we would be indicating that salvation is something earned by us, that it's due to us for our work. We worked a hard day, 12-hour day, and so we earned or we deserve salvation. That doesn't really match. That does not. Uh, that would contradict everything else that we know about the Lord and the gift of salvation. And, and although it fits a little bit better, I don't believe this is speaking about the Jews and the Gentiles either. Based upon really just the overall context of what's going on, there is a mention of the disciples ruling over thrones of, of the tribes of Israel. But really the overall context, if we look at it, uh, doesn't really line up uh, with the idea of... He's not talking about Jews and Gentiles right now. Okay? Recall that a, a parable, it doesn't always perfectly reflect a spiritual truth. And so, so even though these interpretations have their flaws, it is possible that, that maybe this parable is connected some way to salvation, rewards, or nationality of the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? However, I tend to believe that the proper understanding of this parable involves our attitude and our motive for Christian service. If you look at the surrounding context of this parable, previous to this parable, at the end of chapter 19, Peter was asking about what he would get for forsaking all and following Jesus. And then right after this parable, we'll read in next week, excuse me, next week, uh, we're going to see that James and John, they're trying to make a power play using mom to get into places of prominence in Jesus' anticipated kingdom. And so we have bookend on the, the, the context here is, is people trying to, to get into or wanting to know what they're going to get in regards to their service to the Lord. So it seems like the overall context would be talking about Christian service. And I believe that's what this parable is talking about, our attitudes and our motives for Christian service. Okay? And with this perspective, we want to properly identify some of the details here. Okay? It would seem that the landowner from verse 1 is representative of the Lord. Okay, I think that's an easy one to say. The landowner is, represents the Lord. The laborers would be those who have answered the call to follow Christ, to serve Him. Okay. The vineyard is the mission field where we are sent to harvest the Lord's fruit. The denarius represents an expectation of payment. Okay, and so with that in mind, let's move forward here and continue with this account. Verse 3 through 7, it says, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. As the, uh, excuse me, as the day went on, the landowner, he went out looking for more laborers to send into his fields, into his vineyard. Okay? He went out at the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, which would correlate to 9 o'clock a.m., 12 noon, three o'clock in the afternoon. And there was one major difference other than time with these laborers than with the laborers that were hired and started working at 6 a.m. Okay? Did you guys notice what the difference was? It's regards to the pay. Okay? They didn't agree upon a set price for payment. Okay? The landowner simply told them that he would pay them whatever was right. Okay? The word right simply means what was just and fair. And the laborers went out into the field to work without negotiating a deal. Okay? Simply went out trusting the landowner to give to them what was just and what was fair for their work. Those that started the day being sent by the Lord wanted to make a contractual agreement upon their wages before entering into the field, before being sent out, they said, well, we, we need to agree upon the, the terms of the contract here. 
And then once it was agreed upon, okay, they went to work at 6 o'clock. And they were going to work all day long for a denarius. Okay? These people, they, he just said, go into the field and I'll pay you what's right. And they said, all right, I'll go. And they went. I think our attitude should be more like these guys when it comes to our motives and attitudes towards Christian service. We should be content with the fact that God is willing and even desiring to send us into His field to labor for Him, and that ought to be enough. What a blessing it is to know that God can and wants to use people like you and me to accomplish His work. Even though the Lord has an army of heavenly hosts, He chooses to use us who are fallen. Uh, and, and let's just say far from angelic. The fact should inspire us to serve the Lord. Not because we're getting something out of it, but just because He's willing to send us into His field. That God said, I'll take you. Go ahead. Go ahead and work in my field. That alone should be worth it. We shouldn't have to say, well, what's, it, what's in it for me? Like Peter said, well, what are we going to get? We also read that the landowner, he went out one more time at the 11th hour. Okay, this would be 5 o'clock p.m. The work day ends at 6 o'clock p.m., an hour before quitting time. And he found some others that were standing idle in the marketplace. And the landowner asked, why have you been standing here idle all day? What? A great question. One I think we should all ponder. When it comes to Christian service, are we standing around idle all day? And if so, why? Do you not realize that each and every one of you that are the Lord's have been called and equipped for Christian service? Unfortunately, I believe churches today, they seem to be filled with people more concerned with doing their own thing than they are with serving the Lord. I heard one pastor, he likes to call it the pew warming ministry. He says, I got a whole bunch of people that think they're called to the pew warming ministry. But let me tell you, the pew warming ministry is full. And we don't need any more pew warming ministers. Okay? We need people to get involved and get plugged in to stop standing around idle. When it comes to Christian service, would you describe yourself as actively involved in serving the Lord or does standing around idle more aptly describe your situation? The people responded to the landowner, well, because no one hired us. For, for some reason, these laborers, they were not chosen to work by others that came through looking for workers. These laborers, they represent for us the least and the last Others before them were selected for work, chosen to come and serve, but it seemed that nobody wanted to hire these guys. Perhaps they didn't look as big or as strong as the others, or maybe they didn't have the right tools for the job or the ability to do what was asked of them. We don't know why they weren't selected by others, just that they weren't selected. Nobody wanted us. Nobody wanted to hire us. So we've been sitting here all day. But this landowner, he was willing to choose them and send them into his field. The Lord shows the, the same willingness to choose the least and the last in sending out his laborers into the mission field today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. You see, the fact that God chose me shouldn't puff me up. It just means that I was weak enough or, or not smart enough or, or uh, you know, base enough to say, oh, all right, I guess I can do that. God likes to choose the, the least and the last and say, I'll use you. 
The, the, the next verse talks about, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. So that people, when they see God using someone, they're going to be like, that's definitely not him. That is the Lord. Okay? God doesn't choose his laborers based upon their great strength or power. He doesn't choose those that have all the right tools for the job. And he doesn't choose all those with the greatest abilities. He can use them, but he doesn't have to. God often chooses the least and the last. And he's able to do accomplish great things through them. Even though it was late in the day, the landowner, he still was willing to take on new laborers into his field. And he sent these few remaining laborers into the field to work, and the laborers went as directed. Some may have considered the offer of the landowner and came to the conclusion that it's too late in the day to go serve in the fields. It could have, they could have easily been thinking, you know, it's probably not going to be worth it. How much could I really get for just doing an hour's worth of work? Or how much will I really get paid for an hour's work? Is it really worth the time and effort to get involved this late in the day? Seeing the landowner taking these last laborers in the 11th hour reminds us of a very important truth when it comes to Christian service. It's not too late to get involved. Don't listen to the enemy tell you that it's too late, that it's not worth it, okay? To, that it's not worth it to start serving the Lord. It's, it's kind of too late in the day. It's not, you're not going to get anything from it, really. It's not that big a deal. You know, the Lord, He will take people into His service up until the 11th hour. And the only time it becomes too late, so I almost wanted to say, it's never too late to serve the Lord, but it will be too late when our life is done. The only time it becomes too late to serve the Lord is when life as we know it comes to a close. We only have one life to live. And once it ends, then so do our chances to get involved. And so do our chances uh, to, to serve the Lord. Other than that, it's never too late to get involved. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. The end of the workday came, and the landowner told his steward to pay the workers for the laborers, beginning with those that were hired at the 11th hour. Okay? Those that were hired at the 11th hour each received a denarius for their pay, a full day's wage for an hour of work. This was an extremely generous wage for an hour of work, and I'm sure they were overjoyed to receive such a gracious wage. Okay? Likewise, everyone else that came throughout the day, they were paid a full day's wage as well. And when it came time to pay the workers that were hired at the beginning of the day, they supposed that they would receive more than a denarius based upon what the other workers were getting paid. But when they were paid, but they were, excuse me, but they were paid the agreed upon amount of one denarius. Notice with me that the landowner gave specific instruction that the laborers be called together, lined up from the last to the first, and then paid their wages. I believe that the landowner specifically wanted the first to see what the last was getting paid. The order of pay was very important. If the first were paid first, they would have received their funds and departed, not knowing what everyone else was getting paid. And so the landowner wanted the first to see what the others were being paid. Why is that? Let me suggest to you that the landowner wanted to show the first how generous he was and how foolish it was for them to ask for a contract. Well, I'm not going to work for you until you know, I know the conditions of the deal and I want to you know, know ahead of time what's going to happen before I come and work for you. And I believe he wanted to show them 
how generous he was and how foolish it was to make the request that they made. Imagine how they would have felt if I was them that worked 12 hours, and I know some people were only working for one hour, and I see the person at the front of the line worked one hour, and he gets a full denarius. You know what? I'm actually probably pretty excited right now, thinking, whoa, this guy's loaded, and uh, he's paid this guy a denarius an hour. And maybe they're starting to think, maybe we're going to get 12 denarii. Denarii? Denariuses? Denarii. We'll call it denarii. I don't know if that's right. Twelve denarii. Okay. I, I suggest that they were probably excited after seeing the first guy get paid a full denarii. Full denarius. Then after the three o'clock workers got paid a denarius as well, perhaps they were still hopeful. Well, maybe we'll get paid four denarii. You know, that we worked four times as much as these guys, so maybe we'll get four denarii. And... and and so I imagine as the laborers went through and they noticed that each one was getting paid a denarius, that with each payment, hope for a gracious payout was lessened with each group until by the time they got paid, their hope had been turned into great disappointment. They were bummed out. I think the landowner was wanting to show them that they should have trusted in his goodness and perhaps they would have received a more gracious wage. And I believe the lesson for us is similar. We should trust in the goodness of the Lord when it comes to getting involved in Christian service. Okay? We shouldn't come to the Lord wanting to know what we're going to get before we enter into His ministry, into His service. You know, it may sound a little funny, but don't we do that all the time? I've talked to a number of people about getting involved in ministry, and this is basically what they say. We want to know what God's going to do before we step out in faith and serve Him. I know that I've done this many times in the past. Okay? I've tried to reason with the Lord. You know, Lord, if I volunteer to help, I'm going to, am I going to get sucked into doing all these other things too? Because I don't want to do all these other things too. Okay? Lord, if, if I volunteer to help, can you guarantee that I won't have to do A, B, and C? Because I really don't want to do A, B, and C. I'll just, I just want to do that one thing and that's it. I'll serve you, Lord, but, but only under these certain conditions. You know, I, I can only serve, you know, once every six months, and it has to be on a fifth Sunday of the month, and if it doesn't have a fifth then I just can't do it, you know, so my schedule is just too busy. We come to the Lord with all sorts of conditions, and I, and I speak drastically because I don't want to say anything that maybe would make us feel too uncomfortable, but I think we put conditions on our service to the Lord oftentimes. We can be like these first laborers that said, Lord, before I do it, I want to know what's in store for me, and I want to know what your plan is for if I do step up, because I don't feel real comfortable. You might ask me too much. We need to be willing to serve the Lord, trust Him and His plan for us. Amen? Verse 11, let's continue. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That word agree is the same. Did we not contract for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? The first laborers, they complained against the landowner because they didn't think that it was fair that the guys who worked for one hour got paid the same as them who worked for 12 hours. And we might say, yeah, that doesn't sound kind of fair. But remember the context? What's the whole, the last... The first will be last, and the last will be first. God's not going to do things the way that we think they're going to do. Okay, and so that's kind of the idea here. The landowner was quick to point out that he had done no wrong to them, that he paid them according to what they had negotiated. He then informed them that he desired to give to the last the same as he did to them and questioned the motive behind their grumbling. The landowner asked, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? Basically, the landowner was saying, It's my money to do whatever I want with, and what's it to you? 
The landowner got to the root of their problem when he asked the question, or is your eye evil because I am good? An evil eye was meant to suggest an envious or selfish person, someone that was jealous. Okay? And, and so he asked the question, these laborers, they were envious of the treatment that the last laborers received. Instead of being blessed for them, they were wrought with jealousy. How does this apply to us today? Well, I think sometimes that we can, we can get our eyes off of the Lord when we get involved in service, and we can sometimes start to look at others. Sometimes we may look at others and what God is doing in, in and through them and begin to get a little bit jealous. And we may even complain to the Lord about it, asking Him, why is, why is this guy or, or that gal getting blessed so much when I've been serving you way longer than them, Lord? And I've been doing this thing, you know, and I've been faithful. This person just got here on the scene, and you're blessing them and using them. What's the deal with that, Lord? You know, we read accounts of this actually happening within the Bible in Numbers chapter 12. Okay? Aaron and Miriam, they were jealous of their brother Moses and how God was using him to lead his people and to speak on behalf of the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 12, verse 2, they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord, if you guys know that account, he dealt harshly with Miriam for her jealousy towards her brother. She she was stricken with with leprosy. Also in the New Testament, we we read about Peter getting his eyes off of the Lord and looking at the disciple John, wondering what the Lord was going to do through him. Jesus replied in John chapter 21, verse 22, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and not be envious of the Lord's working in in other people's lives. We need to rejoice. When the Lord's blessing a brother or sister in the Lord, that is a great thing. We should rejoice for them and with them. Because... As part of the body of Christ, we all share in the blessings of the Lord. Okay? When the hand gets blessed, the foot shouldn't be mad. You guys realize that? Because there's the same body. We, when we see our brothers and sisters being blessed, man, that, that should give us reason to rejoice. Not to say, what about me, Lord? Okay? That's not the right heart. That's not the right motive when it comes to Christian service and we serve in the Lord and the Lord. we see the Lord bless someone. Man, get our eyes off of those people and get them on the Lord. Verse 16, the last verse. Sorry, I'm keeping you guys late. We're still doing communion today too. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. This last verse, as previously mentioned, is the closing bookend to this parable. Okay? It nearly reads the same as verse 30 of chapter 19. The idea of the last being first and the first being last was given as a warning to Peter about expectations regarding his Christian service. When we serve the Lord, you guys, let's do it out of the love for the Lord and a sincere heart that trust in His goodness and His plan for our life. Okay? Realize that God has called and equipped all of us for Christian service. For those of us who are are the Lord's, He's called us and equipped us. He's given to each of us a gift that we might use it and bring it to the Lord to bring edification to the church body. And we need to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that we deserve better than others. Here's the truth, guys. In all reality, none of us are getting what we really deserve. And for that, I'm thankful, and I hope for that you can be thankful as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and uh, as we have opportunity just to partake of communion, uh, I know it's late. We have a fellowship afterwards, so hopefully it won't bother people, but if people need to go, I understand. Father, we pray that your blessings would be uh, upon our time of fellowship. Lord, we pray for our time of communion. Lord, that... uh, we would ponder just some of the things that we've talked about this morning as we looked at your scriptures and, and saw just you redirecting Peter and his questioning and wanting to know what he was going to get for following after you. And, and Lord, you said, yeah, you're going to be rewarded. Yes, that's true. But hey, things don't always work out the way that you think they're going to work out. 
Lord, it happens like that sometimes in service. And when we serve you, Lord, we get our eyes off of you, Lord. Forgive us for that. Father, may our eyes be upon you. May we get involved no matter how late we think it is. Lord, we know that it's not uh, too late as we have uh, breath in our uh, lungs. Lord, we know that it's still opportunities to serve, still opportunities to get involved. Lord, may we not put limitations upon you and what you want to do in our lives. May we be willing and trusting of your plan for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.